This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Today we continue our series of some of our favorite interviews of the year with comic, actor, and writer Gerard Carmichael. This year he won an Emmy for his HBO comedy special called Rothaniel. What does that mean, right? We soon find out. The special is all about secrets. It starts like this. I want to talk about uh, secrets. <laughs> secrets. Ooh. She'll whisper it, right? <laughs> I carried a lot of secrets my whole life. I, I, like, I, I feel like I was birthed into them. One of my biggest, one of my last held secrets is my name. My name is not Gerard. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everybody. I, uh... Carmichael delivers on that promise to reveal personal secrets about his real name, his family tree, and his sexual orientation. It's a lot. Toward the end, when he's interacting with the audience, his show starts looking like a hybrid of a comedy show and a therapy session. Carmichael has done two other HBO comedy specials, Love at the Store, directed by Spike Lee, and Eight, directed by Bo Burnham. Carmichael was also the creator and star of the sitcom The Carmichael Show that ran on NBC for three seasons. That show portrayed a fictional version of Carmichael's family. Many episodes portray them disagreeing with each other on complicated and uncomfortable issues like, is it still okay to enjoy Bill Cosby's comedy? Is it okay to have a gun in the house? How do you eulogize a bad father? Is it okay to take the morning after pill if a condom breaks? In Carmichael's HBO Max special, Home Videos, he returned home to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and filmed conversations with his real family members about sensitive family topics. His special, Rothaniel, directed by Bo Burnham, was taped earlier this year at the Blue Note Jazz Club in New York City. It's streaming on HBO Max. Our interview was recorded in April. Gerard Carmichael, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I love the new special. Congratulations. And you really were great on Saturday Night Live. So congratulations on that, too. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. What changed in your life that you were willing and able to tell secrets now on stage? <laughs> I think I got tired. Uh, I think I grew tired of um, being someone I wasn't. I felt like I was like just hiding. Uh, they call it being in the closet, I guess, for a reason, because it does feel like you just have walls up. You, you're just like, I felt like I was like walking around with a a mask with my face on it. <laughs> I think it's the best way to describe it. And it, it just, I, I started being more honest with my friends. I started being more honest in my life. Uh, I don't know, it just kind of all over the past couple of years, it all started happening. It all started coming out. <laughs> you know, I, I came out. Family secret, the things I talk about in the show uh, started coming out. I felt freer. I feel freer. I'm still in the process, but uh, the show just captures a moment just where I've just wanted to feel free. Before we get to coming out, let's start with your name, which you tried to keep secret. Gerard is your middle name. Your first name, as you reveal in the special, is the title of the special, which is Rothaniel. Um, tell us about the origin of the name. The name, the name comes from. My father, uh, he uh, he named me after my two grandfathers, his father and my mother's father, um, Robert and Nathaniel 
combined the the two names at birth and never really <laughs> used it. Uh, like we immediately started using Gerard. Uh, it's mostly all I remember since I was a kid. No one ever called me Rothaniel. Um, I was embarrassed, uh, <laughs> very ashamed. It, it was a secret. And, you know, as a child, I already felt different enough. <laughs> and right. like, I don't think that the name helped. <laughs> and so I like it, it was it, it was big. It, it took up too much space. And I, I, I didn't want it. I didn't want any parts of it. So what did you have to do to keep your name a secret? Well, I hid it as much as I could. Uh, on legal documents, they have to write your first name. So I always hid those and turned papers upside down and never showed anyone my driver's license. And as soon as I got my bank cards, I like, well, I had to like quickly get them to take the name off because I would forget and they would have the name and I would go through some process there. Like only... Like a few friends knew, like a few close friends. And then every now and then it would slip through to the yearbook uh, and I would have to get it erased or or like like some years I would bribe a friend that like, please don't put Rothaniel, just put Gerard. And yeah, it was a fight. It was a constant fight, constantly hiding it. You had to keep a lot of secrets as a kid and one of them was about... Your family tree, your grandparents, your father, and all the extramarital affairs they had, and all the outside children that they had. It, it, it's a lot. My one of my grandfathers uh, had dozens outside of his marriage, and the other had a few himself, and including my father, who had um, a few children outside of. His marriage to my mother, uh, which I knew about, I found out about at, a, at an early age. And um, yeah, it, it's in my family history, you know, in a, in a real way. And, and I think it's more common than, uh, you know, I, I, in the South. <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of families where I'm from share that secret or, or have families like that or at least... A, no families or in families like that some way. So these are powerful things to be carrying around as a child. You're hiding your name. Yeah. When you figure out your sexual orientation, you're hiding that. You're hiding the truth about your father's relationship. Um, you're hiding it from that you know from your father. You're hiding his relationship from your mother. You're living with them. I mean, you see them every day. And you have this huge secret you're carrying around about their relationship. How did you bear all that? It's something you figure out later as an adult, you know, reflecting on your childhood or going to therapy or talking to friends. <laughs> you, you know, like I, I thought I did. I thought I bared it. Uh, I thought I bared it without consequence, I should say. And... I, I, I didn't. I didn't go out uh, unscathed. It's definitely things that affect my behavior to this day, fears, you know, my hypochondriacal nature. All things kind of stem from mistrust. But at the time, I don't know, I was just, I was scared. I think I lived in fear. It was a lot of uh, consequence or stakes to, <laughs> to everything. How could you even trust your father knowing how he deceived your mother? 
did you wonder like what what else don't I know about you? What else are you hiding? Yes, yes, it definitely causes me to have like fear of a duplicitous nature of all things, all, you know, everyone. Um, I question everything still, and I'm sure that has like a huge effect on me. It should be said that my father is very um, fun. He's charismatic. He was good to be around, but he used to wrestle with us in the backyard. And, you know, he would pull up <laughs> in the driveway and um, all of my friends loved him as well. He would pretend to be the rock <laughs> and just get out and talk trash. And and we would talk trash back and sometimes get out the camcorder and like film each other, you know, with water hoses tied around a clothesline to resemble the ropes and like <laughs> like mats laid out on the grass and just like slamming each other around and my dad would be out there with us he would play video games with us he would tell stories and he was one of the few fathers in the neighborhood again a lot of broken families and it was a role that he took on kind of silently you know being a father to many of my friends who would just be at our house um my mother would read the bible to us my father would make us laugh, which made it all the more devastating, I guess, (laughs) you know, that there was this, like, other side of a person. Um, Yeah, yeah, but but I love him. I love him. Especially especially with your mother reading the Bible, you know, like your mother's reading the Bible to friends and you're keeping this really big secret about the family. That must have been strange. Well, uh, again, also, like, later in life, you start realizing really irony (laughs) and a lot of the bible verses that my mother would read and how they would reflect situations that uh she didn't know jeremiah chapter 33 verse 1 through 3 call unto me and i will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not um my mother would read that probably still reads it daily and i always I, i guess i found it funny then it's ironic now what does that passage mean to you well it's someone searching for answers the unseen truth but like i would hear verses like that that jeremiah verse um she would always do verses about protection and, and i always felt like i was guarding her and and one time i went home a few years back once i moved to LA and I was visiting. I went to church with my parents and the pastor started doing like this somewhat prosperity teaching. It's very popular, obviously in most churches, we don't have to get into it. But anyway, he was talking about sowing a seed as they call giving money. (laughs) And uh, he, he was saying that just whatever you give, you'll receive tenfold or I'm not sure whatever the amount is, uh, by the end of the week. Um, And he's saying this on Sunday. And I watched my mother go into a purse and put money into the envelope. And I'm like, you know, obviously me just like kind of mocking it It, in my head. I can't believe you're doing it. I think I mocked it out loud in church. I whispered, I can't believe you're doing this. Like you're sowing the seed. Like we should know better than that. And she gives the money. 
we go back home. Anyway, I'm staying home. I always stay home for like a, 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 a few days whenever I go. And whenever I leave, I always give my parents cash. I like plant a certain amount of money uh, in like their sock drawer and hide it and let them find it after I, I go. Um, and, and like a decent amount of like uh, of like pocket money. But, but and not to be gross and say amounts, but I'm like putting two thousand dollars in my mom's sock drawer, uh, and having a flash to the twenty dollars she put in church, and I'm like, damn it, they got me. <laughs> 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 like it got me again. Like look at me, I'm like a pawn in this relationship between God and my mother, <laughs> and like, I'm doing it again, you know. But things like that, I, I just, I, I always kind of felt like the result of what she was asking God for. I was prayed over. I, I was prayed for. Um, deacons and pastors and women of the church would lay hands on my mother and pray. And she wanted a boy and she just had a miscarriage and had me. Um, sorry to get into all of that, but but I'm, I'm just saying how important that relationship with God is and, and, and how much it was instilled in me as a child. Oh, gosh, that's complicated. You know, like you are, like your existence is God's gift to your mother. And that was instilled in you right from the start. And you, you were so involved in your church. And yet, you know, there was, quote, sin in your home. You know, I put that in quotes. Um, no, no, no. That, that's a direct quote. Okay. <laughs> that's, okay. Not, that's, not a, that's not a false quote. I think that's how it would be described. That's so confusing to a child, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It definitely shaped my perspective. Again, like, I, it's, it, I, I remember the fear. I remember the anxiety. I remember just the need to perform, the need to change the energy of a room if a secret could potentially come out or things could go in a direction that, that I thought had great consequence, you know, maybe something that revealed my father or me, <laughs> like, I, it, you know, it was too dangerous. So I, 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 you know, always probably tried to control conversation. You, you say that you made your father tell your mother about his outside relationships with other women and his children by other women. Um, how did you make your father tell your mother, if you don't mind my asking, what did you say to your father? And how old were you when you said it? I was in my 20s. I, I, was, I was in London shooting a movie, and my father had booked a hotel room, and he and my brother have the same name, and the email confirmation accidentally went to my brother and I found out about it. And at this point, I was offering financial support to uh, my family uh, uh, and something about using my money to cheat on my mom felt a little egregious, <laughs> like it felt uh, like a little bit too much. Um, and, and a lot of feelings and a lot of emotion that I suppressed came rushing back. And it just felt like too much. It just felt like enough. And so I called him. I got very drunk and called him. Um, and I was, uh, 
uh, walking around on the streets <laughs> in London. It like, God, I, I remember it being so late, like after midnight. And I started the conversation with this will all go okay as long as you don't lie to me. And, and I'm glad I said that, taking lies off the table immediately. Um, uh, because it went okay, he listened and, uh, and, and apologized. And uh, yeah, 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 it was a really strong conversation, a really hard one to have. I was really scared. Was he shocked that you knew? He said at the end of that call, I always knew you'd be the one. <laughs> I think I say that in the special, but yeah, you do. That's true. Yeah, yeah. He said he said that. Um, um, and and I think that a lot it changed between us. Um, like the power dynamic, it shifted. You know, I was the breadwinner. I I had less fear of uh, like the consequence of asking questions. I guess um, I argued more. <laughs> I think it made sense. I think it made sense to him. So continuing with you telling your father that he had to tell your mother about his affairs, about his children outside of their marriage. And so you told him he needed to do that. And he did it. He told your mother. Did you worry that maybe your mother was better off not knowing? Maybe the best thing for her life was to continue living without that knowledge, without that really painful knowledge? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, I thought it would be over. That, that she'd leave you say him? say it and it's over. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't even know what I thought the exact reaction would be, but something explosive, yeah, I thought it would be devastating. Well, you asked your mother about finding out about this in your special home videos. So I thought I'd play an excerpt of that in which you're asking your mother about, you know, learning about these secret relationships and staying with your father in spite of it. You ever think about leaving? I did at first, oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now I'm not, no, I'm good. No, no moments of resentment, no moments of anger? No, I chose not because I know resentment would build in. So that's why, like I said, it was a gradual thing that I'm not going to sit here and say the hurt and anger didn't try to build because I'm human. But maybe I suppressed some of it, but then I got enough talking and, and asked enough questions that, I don't know, like I said, I'm pretty much content. And it's on him to prove to me that I can trust him again, so it's not on me. Has he been proving it? For the most part. Do you question him now? Yeah. Really, I don't really have to question because he's so on it now. He opens up and tells me, well, as far as I know, everything. It's hard for me to let go and understand. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, just go like, oh, I, because I know, I mean, you're my mother. I know you very well, and I know that you actually don't stay up at night thinking about it. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, what brings you that? What, how do you have the ability to do that? One name, Jesus. Getting back to the church again. So do you think in retrospect that you did the right thing and getting out the truth? 
Well, yeah, always, always. That that was that was a lot to to hear to play back. One because I haven't uh, been talking to my mother a lot, so just um, hearing her voice <laughs> first thing in the morning <laughs> is 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 a lot <laughs> for me right now. Okay, well, let's talk more in a moment, but we have to take another break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Gerard Carmichael, comic, writer, actor. He created The Carmichael Show on NBC and starred in it. He's had several HBO comedy specials. His new one is called Rothaniel. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Today, we're continuing our series of some of our favorite interviews of the year. So let's get back to my interview with Gerard Carmichael. He's a comic, writer, and actor. His HBO comedy special, Rothaniel, is streaming on HBO Max. It's all about secrets, about his real name, his family tree, and his sexual orientation. He also created and starred in the NBC comedy series The Carmichael Show about a family loosely based on his own that constantly disagree on issues relating to politics, guns, abortion, and nearly everything. Carmichael has also had other HBO comedy specials. You made a joke in an earlier comedy special about how a friend of yours came out, and you didn't know why because he was doing very well, and he should have waited until he needed the applause and the support. (laughs) So, uh, so what were you thinking about when you when you came up with that for your comedy special for an earlier one? I don't know what I was thinking. Like, I, like I don't know if it's like me trying to separate myself from it by adding commentary to gay people the same way I've, I would give commentary on women or comment, kind of trying to be an equal opportunity, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, I don't know the word, but, you know, critic? to choose my topics. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, critic, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what the logic was, but definitely it was written as someone so far removed and, and out of touch with who he was. Like, like I, I, I was looking at myself from 30,000 feet in the air. I wasn't writing that joke with any any true connection to to my my life you know it's me trying to it, it's it's me trying to hide with commentary I, I, I think you know what's funny i actually remember uh saying a joke about uh gay people one time at an open mic and uh a comic, a, a, a comic who was gay, got got angry with me, and and he went up after, and, and I remember he did a set commenting on that, you know, and like just kind of trashing the joke that I said, and he, and he came up to me after. It was just at an open mic. I was, this was years ago, and he and he came up to me, uh, you know, and like, you know, in the lobby, and just said he didn't like it, and and and. I remember actually apologizing to him, I, maybe a little bit to myself, but <laughs> I, I, I just remember thinking I don't want to be that person. It, it was self-hate. It, 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 you know, I think that was like a little peek through of like, oh, wait, is that, is that what I'm doing? Like, it, it was, so I don't remember the exact joke, but it was aggressive. I remember it being like some aggressive joke. 
brushing up again. And the guy had on a great leather jacket, too. It was a great <laughs> leather jacket. And he was attractive. Like, it's something I couldn't have said then. You know, and I'm not, like, I don't really remember his jokes, but I remember being like, oh, he's kind of hot. <laughs> like, <laughs> and like, you know, yeah, I felt bad. You know, you, you, you've said that there was a period, there's been periods in your life where you thought you'd rather die than come out. What were the consequences that you feared? Uh, you know, being disowned. Uh, everything gay, uh, <laughs> well, even like when we would use it as a term of like, oh, that's gay. Or it, one, it, it, it was just a dismissal of a person or a thing. It's just, it was a wall. It was like, oh, I don't want any parts of anything that's gay, you know? And and I just felt like I would just be banished from the lives of my friends. They'd be embarrassed to be seen around me. These are the thoughts that I'm having, you know? They'll be embarrassed. They'll be, uh, that everything's high school and that they'll just mock me. I, I, I've I've also been straight long enough to hear how straight people talk about gay people sometimes. What was the model of masculinity you grew up with? I mean, the word hyper comes to mind. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, A a lot of, I I think there were, um, in a world without fathers, I think there was an overcompensation. So people find fathers elsewhere. You'll find a father. You'll find, like, you, you, you need it for balance. And unfortunately, a lot of my friends didn't know their dad and, you know, found it from other guys who didn't know their dad. And, you know, there was always the potential of violence. The, the friends who've gotten killed over, like, ego over protecting that masculinity. It's all all such a a grand performance. Race was an issue, too, when you were coming out in the sense that, like, one of your boyfriends was white. And in one of your home videos, and home videos is another HBO special, an earlier one, you're talking, I think it's to your sister, to one of your sisters, and, and you say, how would you react if I brought home a white girlfriend? And she says you know, that she wants you to embrace black love. And you kind of question, like, well, you know, what what does that mean? But but anyways, so when you had a white boyfriend and you were keeping secret that it was a boyfriend and that the boyfriend was white, like, can you talk about that, that the double secret, the, like, racial and and, and sexual secret? You, you know, you know the, the racial part... Less of a less of a secret and and more of something that I I need to explore in in my own life about being. I find men of all races very attractive, but like like what root of self hate or fear causes me to not date as many black men as white men? You know, like 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 and and that's something that I'm I'm I, I'm cautious to say. It's a mandate I want to change because that just sounds so false and corny and not organic and whatever. But I am exploring, like, what is that, right? And there was this movie 
called Beach Rats that I loved. Um, and I was in the closet at the time, so I couldn't express how much I loved it. I love that movie. And it's about, uh, I, I won't spoil too much of it. Uh, it's worth seeing, but uh, it's a closeted young man who hooks up with guys from the internet, but he hooks up with older guys. And one of the older guys asks him, why are you into older men? And he says, because you don't know anyone that I know. And it's such a powerful line. And I, and I feel like, you know, that, that, I mean, that fear is in me or was in me. I'm trying to eradicate it, but that fear of, oh, it's just my friend. It's just like, you know, especially earlier on when I was like hooking up and it was more discreet and, and, and like trying to keep a secret. I, I was afraid of being with a black guy because he may know my family or may know it's, it's, it's illogical, but like, it's just this, this fear of association, this fear of, yeah, it's just too close and it became all too real. uh, And yeah, that's, that's just, that's messed up. It's self-hate playing out. Let me reintroduce you here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Gerard Carmichael. He has a new HBO comedy special, which is called Rothaniel which, by the way, is his real first name, which he kept hidden most of his life until now. So we'll be right back after a short break. This is Fresh Air. How old were you when you realized you were, you were gay? I don't know. I don't know because I, I don't, I, I've had experiences with other boys when I was a kid and, and, and uh, I've had, you know, little secret things here and there throughout my life, but when I was younger, when the internet and internet porn would come around, I would watch gay porn. And then immediately after, I would watch straight porn almost as if to cleanse it, almost as if to 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 get rid of what I'd just done, to, co- to cover up the sin, to kind of hide it, right? Like, and, and it's a silly psychological game that I played with myself as <laughs> a game of one, um, uh, no pun intended, uh, but, 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 <laughs> but, 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 but you, you see what I mean? Like the example of that, like that, that, what, what, it, what am I doing in that situation? I don't know. I'm, I'm hiding. I'm trying to make it better. I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to make it right. You know, like, like the little, little psychological things like that, um, to, to make it go away that, that. I would try and do that to myself. And so I, when I was younger, I, prob- I believed myself to be on a straight path. Um, eventually, I would have convinced myself to marry a woman in some world. I, I would have, yeah, yeah, I definitely was uh, suppressing it, running from it, hiding from it. Um, so I, how long before I realized that what I was was gay. I, I, I don't know. It just kind of became undeniable. And I, I guess later in life, I, I was, you know, I'm someone, and I'll, I'll use air quotes, that probably leans a bit more masculine. So I could hide it. I could, uh, I could have never come out. And, you know, some people suspect, if you know my affinity for Dries Van Noten, but 
<laughs> like, you know, for most of the world, I was straight presenting. So I was able to hide, you know, um, um, even as a kid, you know, I didn't really play sports. But, you know, my jeans were just baggy enough to be trade, <laughs> you know, to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we talked about how deeply re- religious your mother is. And in her view of Christianity, like homosexuality is a sin, like she is really having trouble accepting that. And that is part of the reason why you've had such trouble accepting it and being open about it over the years. But, you know, you say that you're still Christian, but that it's taken a lot and that you've had to reconfigure God and what God is in order to accept yourself and kind of rebuild from there. What was church like when you were growing up? Fun, actually. It it was it was fun. I, I I sang on the choir. I had a lot of fun. Even as a child, I would go to Bible study on Wednesday nights and and, and just you know getting arguments about faith. <laughs> and it was really fun. It was a it's a great social event. You know, uh, Sunday morning. You know, um, I had friends. There were a lot of kids at the church. Uh, I used to run the sound room. <laughs> for a little while, uh, very, very involved uh, in the church plays. And yeah, it was like my first performance space. Uh, uh, my mom was an usher and I've always been obsessed with microphones my whole life. And I, she used to like after church, she would um, hold me up to the mic when the church was clearing out, like when they were like shutting everything down, she would like hold me up to the mic so I could speak in it. Cause I just love the, the sound. Like it's just such a miracle. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and church was just like the first place that like gave me a microphone and an audience. And <laughs> it's a great show. It's an excellent show. Did you ever do comedy in church? I mean, I probably did comedy everywhere. I mean, but but yeah, definitely, I was I was pretty funny there, uh, and 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 it was always fun to make adults laugh. Like I was one of those kids who who really liked making adults laugh because making other kids laugh was easy. You could do something big and you know slip on a banana peel, but like adults, you had to use intellect to make adults laugh. So I love making like. Uh, go and like laugh and, and and argue and have honest conversations about God and and and, and yeah, it was so fun. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't even know if I'm answering your question. I'm just like reflecting on like it was it was a really it was a it was a great space. I was I, I, I yeah yeah it was a lot of laughs. So like comedy was like your superpower. You know, you had to hide your your actual identity like a lot of superheroes have to do, but you had the superpower, which was comedy. Yeah, it's like a competition that makes you feel good, you know, like uh, when, when it's in a group setting like that, you know, like like comedy's just like, because black people are so funny. <laughs> like like that, that also has to be said that like the average black person is a top 10 comedian. <laughs> Like, like, just like, like a church Blackford, like, it's just so many laughs. Like the culture is funny. Like the culture is, I I think that's why black people are so cool. Like we're able to like, like laugh at things and even laugh at ourselves in certain ways. Like it's like, you know, like everybody's kind of like telling, telling jokes and like, like 
it's a funny environment. Um, so, you know, to be, to be honest with you, to be a funny guy in those environments is an honor. <laughs> it's probably like the biggest honor of my life is like, like to be funny amongst kings and queens. <laughs> like They are very funny. <laughs> So, you know, I just want to end by saying that I hope you and your mother kind of get back together again because you seem like you're so close in so many ways. And and I hope that she's able to eventually appreciate the openness that you have now and the acceptance of yourself and the reality of your truth um, and meet you there. Thank you for that. And, and I hope so, too. And I, I know it starts with myself, like, you know, um, and it's not me trying to take responsibility for anyone else's feelings. But I do know that the world can't love me, my mother included or, or anyone else until I I have a firm foundation and I know who I am and I'm willing to accept who I am. Um, and, you know, that's a process that I, I feel like I started late, but you know, the more honest I am, the freer I am. And, 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 and I hope that time helps. Gerard Carmichael, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, it's just really been great to speak with you again and hear you be uh, so open. And I think it's been great for your comedy. I love the new special. And it sounds like it's been really good for your life as well. So congratulations on all of that. Thank you very much. I really appreciate talking to you. I appreciate your words. It's been fun. My interview with Gerard Carmichael was recorded in April. In September, he won an Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Variety Special. That HBO special, Rothaniel, is streaming on HBO Max. Our series featuring some of our favorite interviews of the year will continue tomorrow with Michael Imperioli. Coming up... Podcast critic Nick Kwa will tell us about some of his favorite podcasts of the year. This is Fresh Air. Every year brings all sorts of great new podcasts, and 2022 is no different. Here's podcast critic Nick Kwa's take on what kind of year it's been. He's also going to tell us about some of his favorite podcasts of the year. 2022 was a decent year for podcasting, with no shortage of new shows worth the time investment. Audio documentary devotees, for example, were well-served by strong releases like Will Be Wild and Rachel Maddow's Ultra. And fans of Celebrity Chat podcasts have more to enjoy, as always. Meanwhile, true crime heads had at least one clear knockout this year, in a show called Bone Valley. But when I look back at a podcast that spoke to me the most this year, I found myself gravitating towards the smaller and scrappier. Projects that, above all else, felt alive with creative spark. One fantastic example comes in the form of a short fiction piece called His Saturn Return. Best described as a cosmic coming-of-age tale, the hour-long audio drama follows a self-centered space alien named Duran Duragd, played by Sai Sion, who also wrote the piece. He's put through a series of intergalactic trials designed to help him grow up and get over himself. If that description makes His Saturn Return seem a little out there, well... That's because it very much is. Duran. Duran. Duran, can you hear me? No. Ah, what? Huh? You are currently adrift in the fractal node. It is on the astral plane. 
Here, your mind is one with reality. Travel here is disorienting. Your mission has already begun, and you are in grave danger. Uh, mm, what in the ninth? Like, from what? Those. Oh, 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 whoa, that was a comet. That was a comet, right? It was the size of it. Just hit Vibrant, energetic, and terribly fun, his Saturn return makes a virtue of excess, evoking a dizzying array of influences that spans E.T., RuPaul's Drag Race, and the works of Douglas Adams. The piece was released through a podcast called The Eleventh, a series specifically designed to publish one-off works that can't be easily placed in a genre and might not be financially feasible as a standalone release. Unfortunately, The Eleventh came to an end this year, closing out its run of experimentation. It will be missed. Few things in this world are more delicious than gossip, and so it is no small thing to encounter a show that bottles the feeling of snooping around in other people's business. Normal Gossip is that show. Hosted by the writer Kelsey McKinney and produced by Alex Sujong Laughlin, the podcast features a deceptively simple structure. In each episode, McKinney presents an extensive anonymous piece of gossip to a guest, who is made to react as the tale twists and turns and spirals out of control, as the very best pieces of gossip tend to do. So she and Craig, she drags Craig back to Southeast Texas. Mm-hmm. They're smarter this time. They rent a car from Good. the airport. Mm-hmm. Alamo. They mm-hmm. arrive at the house and Larry is there. Oh, Not only is Larry there, Larry is in the living room in like a bathrobe over like a white tank top and boxer shorts. Larry is like yeah, holding is. his toothbrush. Yeah, Larry is, is uh-huh. wearing their father's house shoes. Uh-huh. Like, yep. Larry is now living in the guest house. Oh my god. All right. Well, Larry's So Larry <laughs> lives in the house that they lived in when they were doing the renovations. Damn, exactly. I really okay. exactly. wanted them to be in love and it turns out that's just really that's optimistic. Larry's is, uh, just a grifter. Scammer vibes. Yeah. The trick of normal gossip is its focus on the banal. Each story is sourced from and is ultimately about ordinary people. What every good gossip knows, of course, is that banality doesn't equate to boredom. After all, the best stuff that shines in group chats everywhere tend to be the kind of things that can quite literally happen to anybody, from dating mishaps to social scene meltdowns to a horrifically embarrassing faux pas, all of which feature on the show. In an era when the power of celebrity is all-consuming, normal gossip feeds on a more democratic insight. Unbelievable things happen to normal people too. There's nothing normal about my pick for the best podcast of the year, though, which requires some setup to explain. Around the turn of the millennium, a young actor named Connor Ratliff was cast in a tiny role on Band of Brothers, the award-winning HBO miniseries produced by Tom Hanks. But you wouldn't find him on the show, because shortly before filming his scene, Ratliff was asked to re-audition in front of Hanks. He ended up losing the part, later learning it was because Hanks famously the nicest guy in show business, thought he had dead eyes. In early 2020, Ratliff, now a working actor in his 40s, launched a podcast about experience, which he calls, well, Dead Eyes. The show started out as a seemingly quixotic quest to figure out what Hanks meant by Ratliff having dead eyes, which might sound like a bitter adventure, except that it isn't. Indeed, as the show went on, it became apparent that what Ratliff really wanted to do was produce thoughtful interviews with friends and acquaintances 
about the tenuous nature of building a life in show business, which is often filled with disappointment, heartbreak, and the ghost of what could have been. Earlier this year, Ratliff got answers. After 30 episodes, he finally scored an interview with Hanks, and the resulting conversation didn't just turn out to be a satisfying capstone for Ratliff's journey, but also a thoroughly charming interview with Hanks, which saw the older actor imparting wisdom and some existential comfort to his younger counterpart. Yes, you were told I thought you had dead eyes. That's about as concrete a statement as anybody is ever going to have from anybody. Yeah. But I was, I thought, well, in, I go right to the cheesy melodramatic narrative, which is like, oh, okay, so this is going to be essentially an ongoing poison pen letter. But it's not because you, we, the, the people in the know, the people who, who live on Fountain Avenue, as I like to say, know that there's no room for that. You, yeah. you, you can't go there. If you do, it's, 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 the, it's the death of moving forward. It's uncommon for a podcast to land such a resolution, and even more rare for a project with such a prolonged conceit to maintain a strong sense of heart throughout. Dead Eyes is a miracle, and I'll be thinking about this show for a long time. Nick Hua is podcast critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. You can find his review of his favorite podcast of the year, on our website, freshair.npr.org. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we continue our series featuring some of our favorite interviews of the year with Michael Imperioli. He became famous for his role on The Sopranos as the young, impulsive gangster Christopher Moltisanti. Imperioli is one of the stars of the second season of HBO's Emmy Award-winning series, The White Lotus. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering today from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Teresa Madden directed today's show. I'm Terry Gross. Mm-hmm.